Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. We are the custodians of the earth and it is up to us. And there's no government, no bureaucracy, no outside force that's going to save us. And this is the revolution. Grow our own food, create healthy soil, and raise healthy children. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, everyone. So on the day that this comes out, it is Black Friday. Yeah. And it's the end of an early Thanksgiving week. So do we have like a whole month still until Christmas? Yeah. So Black Friday, it's interesting. And we don't really need to go into what that is and what it means in our consumer culture, because I think most people listening to this kind of get that, what Black Friday stands for in our society. So I thought it might be helpful to sort of reframe the day as a day of opportunity. I'm not talking about an opportunity for deals necessarily, or a day when you can get a whole bunch of stuff for cheap. (laughs) What I'm talking about is more of an opportunity to bring awareness and intention to your purchasing decisions. And we're really not here to say, don't buy this or that, or to tell you what decisions to make because we all have our reasons for doing things. And we certainly do owe ourselves grace when it comes to navigating all of these complexities. So I thought we could just begin this morning with a quote from the very first page of the Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. You all know it. I hope you know it by now. And this is an answer to the question, what is slow living? I love it. I love this idea. Okay, so I'll just read the opening paragraph. So what is slow living? Why are people talking about it so much these days? And why is it important? Our own understanding of slow living has to do, quite simply, with making conscious choices about how we live our lives. It's about paying attention to how we spend our time, money, and resources, and taking a step back from the industrialized systems that have come to provide our daily needs. It's also about observing our own consumer habits, where and how they intersect with quality of life and perpetuate an unsustainable paradigm. So (laughs) there you go. That's our idea about slow living. And it's it's very broad and it could be taken any way you want to take it into your own personal life. But in terms of Black Friday today, I just think it's helpful to think about it in that way. 
and use this as a frame of reference when you are deciding what to purchase or not. Right. And also something, at least for me personally, that comes up around Black Friday is a little bit of urgency and anxiety, like got to get in on this deal while it's still a deal. And that's just a a tactic. <laughs> so just as long as you recognize that it's a tactic to get us to spend more money that we might not otherwise spend. In some cases, it's a good opportunity to take advantage of a deal. Again, we can't tell you like what to do and what not to do, but just being aware of the feeling behind how you're going about your day. I hope it's fun, whatever it is. That might mean going out and doing some Christmas shopping. That might be really fun. That might be going on a hike in the woods. That might mean staying home and baking something or just doing nothing because you might have been doing a lot of work for the past few days, entertaining family and cooking and whatnot. So whatever that means to you, we just encourage you to be present with it and yeah, enjoy time with with loved ones, if that's something that you're able to do. Yeah. I think the bottom line is just, like you said, bringing awareness and intention to your actions, particularly today, always. But this is a a really good day to employ that practice, I think. Yeah. And because we're in the middle of our Good Dirt Pledge Drive, I am going to bring that up in this moment to talk about gift giving and all of this. If you are looking for experiential gifts or a different kind of gift that fits into a different category, we have gift pledges affiliated with supporting this show. So if you have someone in your life who is a Good Dirt listener or who maybe isn't a listener yet, but would love to be a listener, you think they would love this show, then we've made it super easy for you to participate in the pledge drive, either pledging yourself or as a gift pledge to someone else. So the gift pledges are really cool because you basically gift an entire year of pledges at once. And then the recipient receives all of the physical rewards affiliated with that tier and all of the fun online bonuses. It's all laid out on the website under podcast. If you go to the ladyfarmer.com website, click on podcast, click on Good Dirt Pledge Drive. We'll also link it straight in the show notes. But we have a couple of really fun treats for you. One of them being that we are bringing back the original Lady Farmer Camp Cub travel mug. It's made by Mir, which is a really great company that makes travel insulated food containers and drink cups. And The mug is just white and it says Lady Farmer, Sowing Seeds of Slow Living. And we love them and we've sold out of them a while ago. And so we are bringing them back, especially for this pledge drive, as well as a super cute tote bag design that will also be printed on organic cotton and sourced responsibly. And this design is really cute. If you haven't seen it yet, definitely check it out. So that, in addition to all of our really fun online perks affiliated with the Pledge Drive, we're so excited. And we really depend on listener support and listener involvement in the show to keep it going. So we're really grateful for you guys. And we're, we're so grateful for this journey of getting to talk to all of these amazing people and share these conversations and these ideas. It's been really amazing to watch what has come back around from that. We have an interview coming up that we will share with you soon with a Good Dirt listener, longtime listener that has taken many of the conversations and ideas that she's heard from the show and used them to help inform her creation of an early childhood environmental education curriculum that she's now piloting and sharing with 
the rest of the country. So we can't wait to share that episode with you guys. That was just such a wonderful full circle moment for us to conduct that interview and to meet this amazing listener turned friend. So yeah, I mean, before I go too far and getting really gushy, just to say that we want to keep doing this. So we really appreciate your contributions to keeping the show going. And we're excited about the fun ways that we've we've made it really fun. So we hope that you'll consider. Yes. And before we move on to today's episode, I want to say thank you to everyone for taking time to make your choices. Even, you know, if, if you choose to contribute to our pledge campaign, that is wonderful. But if you're choosing other alternative purchasing decisions, that's fine too. I just want to say whatever you're doing out there that's mindful and you're considering your impact as a consumer and you're considering the impact on the earth and other humans and all beings on the earth, I just want to thank you because that's the kind of paradigm shift that's going to make really make a difference down the road is all of us internalizing these decisions, being aware of what we're doing and how we're impacting the life all around us. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for making decisions around creating good dirt, whether it's helping this podcast or whatever you're doing out there that helps make this a better and healthier place to be and a place to live. So Thank you very much. And Emma, do you want to introduce our guest for today? Yeah. Speaking of people out there making a difference, this is a really fun one. Molly Englehart is our guest today. She is a regenerative farmer, chef, restaurant owner, and mother of four. She's also an impassioned advocate for good dirt. She uses sustainable practices on her three regenerative farms, two of which are located in California and the other in Texas. These farms supply fresh and organic produce to many residents, as well as her four restaurants and brewery. Molly sits on the board of Kiss the Ground, which is the foremost soil and regenerative agriculture nonprofit that raises awareness through storytelling, education, and advocacy. The foundation produced the film Kiss the Ground to show the potential of stabilizing Earth's ecosystems through regenerative practices. Molly is dedicated to living and sharing a natural and practical earth-minded lifestyle. From her regenerative farms and restaurants to her deep concern for healthy eating and holistic family life, Molly is showing us all a way forward. Molly believes in good dirt or compost as key to healing our planet which as you know, is what we talk about all the time on this show. So this was a very affirming and inspirational conversation for us, the kind that makes you want to stand up and shout, listen to this. And so we hope you will. So here she is, Molly Englehart. And what do I do? That's a good question. I'm a chef. I own a small chain of restaurants in the Los Angeles area. I'm a farmer. I own a farm in California and I own a farm in Texas. And I'm a mother of four. I had four children later in life. I had bought into the second wave feminism and thought it wasn't important to have children. And then all of a sudden woke up and realized it was. And I started at 37. So I have very young children. So I'm a mother. I'm a farmer, I'm a chef, 
and I'm inspired about food, always have been kind of interested in the act of cooking, the act of sharing love through food. And early in life, I started to look at how we cook food and the matriarchs or patriarchs of the family have traditions around food. And there's so much love that goes into the food from the grocery store to the mouths of our family members. And then there's so much not love prior to that. I originally thought, you know, veganism was the answer. And I was very into that. And I had a lot of dogma that vegan was the answer for the environment and all of that. And I listened to a Graham Sate talk in 2013 that really broke down the number one environmental issue and then the solution. And I was pretty apathetic at that time. I was an environmentalist, but also just kind of thought, well, the whole world is burning up in flames, just giving up. And I'll bring my reusable bags to the grocery store and drive my hybrid and drink my oat milk latte and (laughs) say a prayer over it and think we're going to be okay. (laughs) And I was apathetic, to be totally honest. And when I understood the possibility of soil and the sequestering of carbon, and then I understood that more damaging than carbon, although we talk a lot about carbon because it can sell solar panels and it can sell electric cars and it can sell windmills, is methane. And the methane, cow farts is what everybody says, but it's our food scraps. And then I realized like, I'm a chef, I'm dumping food. Like people come in, they overorder, they overeat. I'm, they, I'm cutting the tops of all the carrots, the bottoms of the cauliflower, the bottoms of the carrots. Like mass amount of food waste is going into the landfill And methane from food waste is the number one problem. I was like, (laughs) so, (laughs) so I gave up my life. I got a nice house and a gated community (laughs) with a pool and some palm trees. And I was like, fuck it. We're going to buy a farm and start a a compost. I'm going to compost. I'm going to sequester carbon. (laughs) This is so great. We repeat on here all the time. I I say it so much. I'm sure people probably go, stop saying this, Mary, but about the food waste thing, because like a a lot of people don't understand it. So I'm so glad to hear you say it. I'm actually, I'm kind of like the anti, I'm I'm like the anti-greenwashing environmentalist. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done talking about carbon unless we're talking about sequestering it, because I think that it's a distraction. The forever chemicals that are being sprayed on our food, on our furniture, on our clothes, that are water soluble and they're ending up in our food and in our water and in our soil should be the number one concern of anybody that's an environmentalist. Like I'm done talking about carbon. We have a solution and nobody's paying attention to it because we can't sell batteries or whatever. Like there's no economic gain to getting a bunch of people to steward the land. And so we are the ones we've been waiting for. And that's what I realized sitting on my floaty in my pool in my gated community. Like, fuck, I got to do this. Damn it. I got to get up and milk a cow every morning and pick up its poop and feed it to worms and then feed that to the avocado tree. So seems like another big job on top of the restaurant job. So I basically chose the three hardest jobs in the world, motherhood, restaurants, and farming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going for an easy life. You know, I just want to float through and do it the easy way. But the food waste thing is major. And here's the thing. The other reason we don't talk about it is because most of what I believe that we talk about in the environmental thing is actually to have us feel 
unempowered. It's to have us feel like, oh God, it's it's just too big. None of us can really do anything about it. And then governments can pass these laws and ways to try to change our behavior. But if we say like composting, if everybody just composted, that would be like a huge difference. Then let's do that. But people don't even know how big of a difference it would make. People have no idea the difference between composted food scraps is like organic matter in the soil, more nutrients in the soil. It's like everything works. And the problem with our society is that we've gotten so efficient, we're not efficient anymore at all. So we have somebody over here growing pigs and the pigs are over there and they need to truck feed to them. Then they need to find a place to put the poop and got someone over there and they're making milk and they got just miles of cows and, and miles of manure and they got to get feed to them and then silent. When it used to be, you'd have 10 or 15 cows on a farm and that would support a certain a little area of milk. And then those that poop would go on to the crops so that they would grow the crops. And it was this whole system. We've left that system. And now we're like super efficient at growing cheap lemons in rows with no grass underneath it and Roundup. And we're super efficient at making cows that can make five gallons of milk a day. You can rip the baby off of them right away when they're bored. And, and then we have all these problems like, oh, there's all this poop going into the ocean and crazy plumes. And da-da. and it's literally like, well, remember when it was all together? Like we got, and we're terrified of poop. Other thing I think that we have to do to save the planet, if we are want to believe in the crisis, like crisis management thing, we need to get over our issue with poop because poop needs to be in the loop. And all this like, Care people like we're just gonna people are like, well, you want poop on your food? And I'm like, well, do you want petroleum-based fertilizer? There's only two options, guys. It's dead, there's three options: dead animals, poop, and pee, and petroleum-based fertilizer. So, like, <laughs> I, I, I yes, I I want dead animals and I want pee and poop on my food. Yeah. Yes, a hundred percent I do. This is like people come to the farm and they're like, Oh, tell me what produce was not was grown with no poop. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize people say, ask, wow. No, no. And oh yeah, people come to the farm, they're like this. Oh my God, it's, there's a, and I mean, it's not like a capo feedlot. We have like a few cows. Like it's not, it's not in my opinion, like, but people are just very, but we'll sit in our house and breathe the same air over and over and over again. And the things that we're terrified of is the microbiology, but the microbiology is is working on our behalf. Like soil, 70% compatible with the healthy gut microbiology. So think about that. We're meant to eat of the soil. Yes. I'm just sitting here going, yes, yes. But I want to circle back to, you said you saw a documentary that really kind of shifted you. It was a TED Talk by Graham Sate. And I think it was 2013. And what was the kernel of what he said? What was your aha there? Like, oh, I mean, at that time, like regenerative agriculture. So my brother started Kiss the Ground around that same time. Oh, your brother started Kiss the Ground. Yeah, I sit on the board of Kiss the Ground and my brother started it with his best friend from childhood. So that regenerative agriculture thing 10 years ago was not, I'd say that Kiss the Ground made it a household name, a regular thing that people know about. And now there's certifications and everything. But the idea that the amount of carbon that we are told by the science is detrimental in the atmosphere is essentially what's missing from the top eight inches of topsoil. Within a span of two years, we could have it drawn back down into the topsoil if we did regenerative agriculture at scale. Seemed 
there hadn't been any solutions before that. I mean, I question everything. So when people tell me like, we're going to go to renewables by 3030, this is a big conversation, right? 2030, I hope. I mean, 2030. (laughs) What's 3030? (laughs) But here's the thing. It's not going to happen. Don't hope because it's not going to happen. Here's the thing. There's not enough cobalt in the world, like the amount of energy it would take to build enough solar panels. You know, we've been working on in California on solar for like a long time and it's still like two or three percent of the total usage. And they're talking about and and I mean, it's it's massive, like just miles of solar panels and the waste and the, all that like there's so much associated with that and being produced in questionable conditions and all this stuff. And here's the thing, regenerative agriculture can reverse so much of it in a way that doesn't involve mining things, doesn't involve slave labor in China, doesn't involve all these parts and pieces and heavy metals and all this stuff. And so I want to wake people up to the possibility, but there's not going to be some big BlackRock or Vanguard or Front Street that's like, we're going to do regenerative agriculture because it has to be us. It has to be on the grassroots level. And so I want to inspire people that just like this mom chef, like just did it and said like, fuck it, let's go. Because, because there isn't going to be somebody else to do it for us. I love this. And we don't have time to wait for the politicians and the big corporations and the policymakers to turn this gigantic thing around. You know, there's, we don't, we don't have time when the truth is, especially when the truth is that we can do it, what you're just saying, we can do it as individuals. And honestly, that every time the policymakers try to do it, they end up making things harder. And that's part of why I've moved to Texas or I'm moving to Texas. And people say, I can't believe you're moving to Texas. And I'm like, I'm so happy to be moving to Texas because You can't do anything in California anymore because there's so much policy. And maybe it was thought of with a good mind and a good heart, but the way it plays out in the bureaucracy is not good. I think that we don't need the governments to regulate every little thing because then when people are thinking outside of the box, it's impossible for them to move. And that's why I came here because I, you can't live in a tiny house where I live. You can't live in community where I lived in California. You can't have a compost pile more than six feet. I mean, you can't do anything without the government's permission. And therefore, the kind of stuff I want to do about earth buildings or different kind of air creep or any of these things, it's not approved. It's not approved. You can't and, and so I want to live somewhere where I'm free to try earth building, to try a cob building, to try an air creek, to try these different things, to live in community with many people in tiny houses. And when we start expecting the government to regulate these things, often they're going to kill off the inventions that could be amazing for humanity. And so that's what I want people to think about when they go vote, that Sometimes we don't need everything regulated. That overregulation is just as harmful as nothing, you know, no regulation whatsoever. I want people to think about that because it's 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 hard to move in California. And I believe that the intentions in the beginning were probably good, but they aren't always based in logic. They're based in emotions. Yeah. 
I want to say something really quickly going back to, we've kind of gotten away from it, but you were saying in the beginning, like individual actions and people thinking, you know, like your image of like using your reusable bag and your oat milk latte and then composting. And I think it's interesting that what I heard you saying is that we put composting in the same category as reusable bags and avoiding single use plastic and drinking oat milk, if that's you know, what we think is good for the environment, but it's a completely different category. And maybe that's part of the problem is like composting isn't just like one little cutesy thing you can do to like save plastic. It's like so paradigm shifting. It is so, so paradigm shifting. And, and also grazing animals on grass it is paradigm shifting. And I, I, there's these, there's like the five principles of regenerative agriculture that, our paradigm shifting. And it's so many different things that are impacted. For example, my farm in California, we compost everything from the restaurants and then we don't do any tilling. We use animals for clearing and going mob grazing through areas. In just two and a half to three years, we built like this much beautiful black topsoil and we changed the water infiltration rate by hundreds and hundreds of times. So it's not just about me growing healthy food that's better for you if you live in that area and you can get that box. It's not just about me sequestering carbon because that's what we should be doing if we're putting carbon in the atmosphere. But it's also that my little plot of area that I'm stewarding is sucking water down into the aquifer and my neighbors with the roundup is just running off into the ocean. And so it's so many ways that regeneration helps that it's not just one way. And so it's also when we're measuring it, like what's the cost and there's more labor and blah, blah, blah. I think it has to, we have to think about what is the true cost of anything? What is the true cost of cheap food? Even when we're moving food across borders, how much food waste? I just was talking to Yadi Wang, who's a regenerative farmer from Arizona on a IG Live the other night. And I can't remember, but it was billions of tons of waste at the border, the US-Mexico border every year, stuff that doesn't pass um, inspection that gets thrown away, right? And so whenever you're moving food from far away, so there's the local food component, there's the grass and the sequestering carbon component, there's the pulling water down component, there's the using less water. I produce, you know, 10x the produce of my neighbor with half the water. But yeah, I use the labor. But I also think we need to change the paradigm about labor. Labor is something that we see as a liability. But without labor, there's no community. If you look at these agricultural towns that have gone to just growing corn or growing soy, and there's one guy with hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands of acres, the vet is gone and the grocery store is gone and the the, the hardware store is gone. And when you have labor, when you have employees, all those people, they go eat at the local coffee shop. They go purchase stuff at the hardware store. They go to the pet store. They bring their kept dog to the vet and it creates community. When we have no labor, we have no community. And so I really think, and this is counterintuitive. I know a lot of people think we should consolidate into cities and rewild nature. I do not believe that. We need to get out of the cities and get onto land and steward nature. We have to be the apex species. Our ability to shift what's happening with nature in a positive way 
is just as powerful as our ability to shift it in a negative way or maybe more powerful when we start feeling like we don't belong here, that there's nothing we can do about it. That is really dangerous. We belong here. We are of the earth. We are not the problem. We are not the virus. We belong. And now it is our job to be our position in nature. And there's so much evidence that shows that the rainforest was a co-collaboration with the indigenous people, that the rainforest that we know now as the Amazon, there's a lot of evidence you guys can look up. There's a lot of stuff written about it, that it was a co-collaboration. It didn't just like a monkey shit a seed out in a cap, that it was a co-collaboration with the indigenous people. And so we can be a co-collaboration with nature. And that is the most powerful tool that we have in the climate change conversation. But it's not just the climate change conversation, because I'd say that we're about 50-50 split in the world on where people stand on climate change. And I think it's really important that we don't just like act like one side is right and one side is wrong. But it's we're talking about nutrient density water quality, the survival of the family farm. And these are important to the side that may not see climate change in the way that other people see climate change. So I think that we have to speak into the listening of this is about your children being able to be healthy and reproduce. I think that I heard Dr. Zach Bush saying that by 2040, the average sperm count of a male will be zero in this country and in most developed worlds. Well, that little boy that just interrupted our thing, he'll be how old? He'll be 20 something at that time. I want my children to be able to reproduce if they want to. And so I think that the cop, we need to move away from the this like carbon catastrophe conversation and we need to move into our children, family farms, the health of our water, the health of our food, the health of our air, because those are uniting conversations. Those are conversations where people are not going to argue that everybody feels the same. And so I think that's really important that as environmentalists, we move our conversations and we don't lead with climate change, climate crisis, but what we lead with healthy soil, healthy food, healthy water, healthy air, and that our children can reproduce because there's nobody that's not behind that. People ask me, why did you give up everything and to be a farmer at this later stage of your life? And I said, because I want my children to be able to eat food that came of the earth and I want them to be able to reproduce if they want to. Just those things. <laughs> <laughs> the really super empowering piece of this whole thing is to understand that and Emma and I just had a conversation. We just recorded a conversation just between the two of us the other day for an episode about how everybody, no matter your circumstances, you can have a part in building healthy soil. You can do it. So this feeling of powerlessness and hopelessness about the situation. And a lot of and grief and overwhelm about the climate, which a lot of people, I think, experience, which then is just paralyzing. So I don't think that's helpful to your point. It's not helpful to even think about it as a crisis because, okay, what do we do? And it's up to the big companies. It's up to these big giant conventions they have abroad in these symposiums where they talk about it a lot and decide what they're going to be doing over the next 50 years. It feels so... Like far away. Yeah. But this is so not far away. And I'm just a regular person. And I had a little bit more resources than a regular, regular person. I'm not you know, millionaire, billionaire, like, so 
it, it is hard work. I'm not going to lie to anybody, but we talk about this a lot in my community. It has to be trust, though. The hardest part that's going to be about people getting on the land and doing this work is trust. Because, yes, it, people will come and say, well, you had the privilege to be able to buy the land and blah, 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 blah. Well, they don't actually know the whole story. My husband was undocumented. We couldn't get a load. And there was, we tried for seven years to get land. And so... And we just kept trying and kept trying until somebody financed the land for us, an individual. And so it wasn't the way that people make it up. But I live with 21 people on land together. Some of them work as a job there and live. Some of them live and work a job somewhere else and work part time to for food and, you know, because they want to have some part in the thing. Some people work off, live off site and come to work. But it's the trusting each other that has to happen. Not every, everybody doesn't need a million dollars to buy a piece of land, but everybody has to be willing to find a group of people that they trust and do it with people. We don't trust people anymore. And here's the thing, it's an illusion. People think like I can be in my own little cocoon and I don't need to trust anybody and I can just have Amazon and Uber deliver everything to me and I'm totally self-sufficient. They're not self-sufficient at all. It's just their community is Amazon and Uber driver and the dry cleaner and the whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's all, it's purely an economic exchange. And if their economic situation changed, then they'd have nothing. But they still depend on just as many people as I depend on. But I may be like, oh, Tara feeds the birds and then she gets milk from the cow or whatever. And she lives in her tiny house and we have a relationship. That's a different exchange. And it's not really dependent on money necessarily. You know what I mean? And so I think we have to have trust and that we don't have trust. And so foundationally, we have to find our tribe to do this work because it can't be done alone. It can't can't be just like I work one job and then pay people to do this job over here. And even without regenerative farming, 70% or 80% of farms have, farmers have an off-farm job. So that means that people that grow our food are working a second job in order to feed us. And people go, well, everybody, a lot of people have to work a second job. Okay, yes, but farming is not like a 40-hour-a-week job. It's like a seven days a week, Water things need to be watered, things need to be fed. There's no days off, there's no vacations, and then we're working another job to make it work. That's not sustainable. And why the family farm that was better for the environment used to work is because people had a bunch of kids and then a whole family did it together. It takes a community and we have to get back to this. This individualism is not the answer for the future. And I don't mean, I think individualism is a good thing. I don't mean like that in a bad way, but I mean that everybody's going to be alone and in their little pod is not the answer for healthy food for the future because it's going to take us joining together to make it happen. Like when you fly on an airplane, you ever look over and you're like, wow, in one block, there's nine swimming pools. Like they could have one swimming pool for that block and then grow food, like all that whole section. But I mean, there's so many ways that we kind of, because we all need our own thing, we're wasteful. But if you could have people living in community where there's one internet, provide one internet bill and there's one electric bill and there's one this and people have their own spaces and then you're sharing. But that doesn't work for like the powers that be to not have us 
move out of the house at 18, get your own place, have your own electric bill, have your own cell phone, have your own insurance, have your own cable bill, have your own da 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 But why? Like, why? If we could live on land and we could all share a Starlink and then we could, then the money stays on the land and in the land. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. I don't know if we we sort of breezed over the part of the beginning, but can you tell us, give us a layout of what your situation is? So you you do so many things, but tell us about more about this farm and its relationship with the restaurant. I know your restaurant has multiple locations, correct? And then you mentioned you're transitioning to Texas. So can you kind of give us an overview of what it's going on? <laughs> it sounds awesome. My farm is for sale in California. So if somebody wants a beautiful regenerative farm already all set up and their their livelihood is dependent on California, they want us amazing. There's 300 different kinds of food growing. There's vineyard, there's a hop yard, there's greenhouses, cottos, lemons. It's incredible and it's available. So if anybody wants that, it's in Ventura County in Fillmore, California, and it has a river running past it. It's the last undammed river in Southern California. And so that's where I currently live. And the county, I came into some issues with the county and not really allowing me to live in community, and which was the start of our desire to find land in unincorporated counties uh, in a red state where there was less regulation so we could grow a, a community and build what we want to build and not have there be so much uh, oversight that it inhibits our ability to do what we want to do. And so we're trading the beautiful river and our beautiful Southern California weather for a much harsher climate. We got much more land here. We have 250 acres in Texas and just at the beginning stages of this amazing project. It's going to be an on-farm brewery where we're we're hoping to be the first fully rainwater beer. So we'll collecting rainwater and then making, filtering it and making beer out of it. And then the thing that I've noticed about having a brewery in Los Angeles is 
So the grade has to come to the brewery and the beer has to leave the brewery to be sold. But the grain that the animals get, the spent grain, if the brewery was on the farm, that's cutting out one trip that the grain doesn't need to go anywhere. And so we're going to put the brewery on the grain on the farm. And so the grain can just get fed right to the cows and some of the grain can get grown right here on the farm as well. So that is uh, awesome. Uh, in the realm of cutting out one trip for the the grain. And we don't want grain going into the landfill. That's a big problem with the methane. And then we're getting 30 tiny houses with the Eclipse people from North Carolina. It's called Eclipse Cottages. And so we're going to have a tiny house village that will be short-term rentals that people will be able to rent out and come and visit for short-term stays, long-term stays. And then we have this event center that we're building. It has a commercial kitchen. And so people will be able to do parties and, you know, and we're going to do all types of education, homesteading courses, regenerative agriculture courses, all different kinds of gatherings here on the farm. And so that's the project I'm working for on right now. And we're currently raising the money and there's going to be an on-farm restaurant kind of where people can come and we'll have, it will be open all the time, but like having brunches at different meals, that's all farm food curated by me and my husband. Amazing. Are you keeping the restaurant, the current restaurant that's in California? Yes. Uh, we, as far as, yes, as long as it can, we're struggling right now, um, COVID policies have been very challenging for restaurants. And California, we were closed for dining, indoor dining for almost two years, you know? And so we are trying to recoup. So I'm hoping that we are keeping the restaurants in California, but it's been really challenging. And what's the restaurant called? Sage Plant-Based Bistro and Brewery. Cool. Okay. All of our Southern California listeners. Yeah, go there. Check it out. Now, plant-based, does that mean it's a vegan restaurant? Yes, ma'am. I believe that animals in conjunction with grass are one of our greatest tools for sequestering carbon. But I also didn't know that when I started my restaurant 10 years ago. And I thought cow farts were the biggest problem. Oh. So I had got indoctrinated. <laughs> I love this. I love this. I got indoctrinated into like, I don't need a man. I don't need to get married. I just need a career. And I don't want to eat meat because of cow farts. And then I realized... <laughs> I totally want a man. I totally want to have mom be a mom. And I still don't eat meat. I've never eaten meat. My mom raised me vegan. So I still haven't eaten meat ever. But I'm married to a Mexican who eats meat every day. And you raise meat. Uh, we don't raise meat here, but we there we, that might happen in Texas. But we don't in uh, California. There's We are just have uh, animals that are dairy. We have a small dairy herd. And it's a herd share. So in California... The regulations are such that we have a herd share. So it's a group of people that own the cows on my farm and that they all share in the milk and that share in the cost. Of and cows. your brother, as I just learned, is the leader of this movement that talks about how vegans have it all wrong. So you you're amazing. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. But you got to get my brother started Cafe Gratitude with my father, which is also a vegan restaurant. We all. We all believed that we were doing the right thing. But here's the thing. This is what I'm willing to say. We as a family are willing to go all in on what we think is the right thing. But I'm also willing to change my mind on what I think the right thing is. And wisdom is, I believe wisdom is doing your best and following what you believe is the best, but being willing to shift when something else makes more sense. And I think it's interesting. I think in this world that we live in right now, we're kind of, I say I'm a radical centrist because everybody's radical, right? There's a radical left and the radical right. But 
I would say that I will, I'm a radical centrist because we've gotten so polarized that all of a sudden you're like, if you are this, then you have to agree with all of this. And if you are this, you have to agree with all this. And that's not normal. People don't all agree with everything about anything. We, we are not, I'm non-binary in my political views. I'm, I'm, I'm centrist. And so it's also interesting to me how so many of these things, as you mentioned earlier, that we talk about healthy water, healthy soil, healthy children, being able to have children. Why? Are those political? Why have we politicized each of those? Like, that's just, they're like apolitical topics. No, but everybody agrees about those yes. things. That's why I think we should make those the focus of anything that we talk about. And people, you can look up, if you go on Instagram, like, for example, and you look up like raw milk, for example, you're going to find very far left and very far right are really excited about the, the health benefits of raw dairy, for example. Or look about, uh, being able to process and harvest your own meat on your own farm. You're going to find people from both sides that are committed to that. There's a lot of stuff. And, you know, when I moved from Los Angeles to where I live now, I had a big awakening, I think, about what I thought like right and left was and their wings and all these everything, because I started to notice that I had neighbors that had a Trump sign in their yard and at that time, I probably believe that meant they hated my husband and hated my kids and whatever I had made up in my head. But then I start like they're into home births and raw milk and organic farming and all this stuff. And I was like, wait, like we align on so many different things, but the media would have you think that we're so far apart on so many things. And what I realized through moving to a small town and farming and everything is that the majority of us actually are committed to those basic fundamentals that I just said, being able to have babies how you want to have babies, being able to have babies, being able to raise your children how you want to raise your children. Like these are fundamental things that everybody can agree on. And so I'm all about what can we agree on instead of let's picking at the wound of what we can't agree on because that is where nothing gets done. And nobody wins. Nobody wins when we're just like pointing fingers about how wrong mm -hmm. each other is or picking apart. You know who wins? The news channels Bing. and the gets clicks. Yes. You get clicks, you get Click eyeballs. Bang. Yeah, like that's who's winning. And that's what's really scary. And then the more clicks and the more eyeballs, the more separate and the more separate and the more separate. That's why I always tell people I'm a radical centrist and people think that's a funny thing to say, but because it is kind of radical to say I'm in the center, like I don't agree with both sides on everything. And that is a, nowadays a radical thing to say. Yes. And how you just explain yourself as a radical centrist to me, that, that's so perfectly illustrated in your stance on the, the vegan thing, because I've been hoping to meet somebody like you for a long time, someone who chooses not to eat meat for whatever reason. It doesn't matter what reason, but you appreciate the value of responsibly raised animals, grazing animals for the improvement of our soil. And yeah, so that's... And that I mean, doesn't mean that you have to eat it. That you doesn't mean you have to eat it. <laughs> Great. No, I, here's the thing. There's plenty of people that want to eat meat. I always say this. There's plenty of people that want to eat meat. But here's the thing. But I love my animals. And I love animals as a whole. But I also believe in whole foods. 
And so when you look at a lot of these meat products that are coming out on the market, they're not necessarily beneficial for our health. The more that we're eating processed foods, the less we're getting that microbiology that I said is 70% the same as a healthy gut. And you look at healthy gut causes healthy brain function, healthy immune system. So there's so much that are involved in healthy gut. But when you're eating genetically modified foods or foods that are highly, highly processed, that is not giving us the microbiology of our gut. And that's why I think everybody should have a garden just for your own gut, like from a selfish point, even if you're growing a little basil or a little whatever in a window box. If we're not having that experience of touching soil and being with soil, we're not replenishing ourselves. And we're getting so much of our food from so far away, and it has to be sterilized in order to make those trips. It has to be dipped in some kind of sanitizer. And when our ancestors cut a piece of cabbage, and then they put it in a fire, or they rinsed it off, and they chopped it up, and they ate it, and or they fermented it for cabbage, and we got all this microbiology that we're no longer getting, and we're trying our best to take probiotics and all of that. But the reality is our connection to soil is profound. And I don't know if you guys know this, a lot of people don't know this, but 25% of the life on the planet is in the topsoil. And so we talk a lot about polar bears and seals and and lions and tigers and big animals, but 25% of life on the planet is in the topsoil. And we just keep tilling it and tilling it and tilling it. And here's the thing, Think of it like a coral reef. If you tilled a coral reef with metal blades every single year, would it be able to recover in just one year? And the other thing is that microbiology in the topsoil only lives with a living root. And so it needs a living root. And so we have to figure out a way to keep the ground covered with living roots. And the more that we are having big open fields that are just like plow, plant cauliflower, pick cauliflower, big empty field that is causing mass extinction event in the soil. And so this is super important. And that's why I have a problem with the green movement as it is today, because I feel like there's very obvious things that we could make a difference about, but nothing is being done about Roundup or things that are killing soil on a massive level. But there is things like there's subsidies for growing corn, subsidies for growing soy, subsidies for all these things. But what about subsidies for carbon sequestration, for water sequestration, for hummus in the soil, for nutrient density of the food? Like if we're going to, I'm not big on government subsidies, but let's say we're we're not going to go to a world with no government subsidies. I don't think either the left or the right imagines that world. So why not use the subsidies to push the needle, why are we subsidizing all this big green technology, which is also having an impact on the environment? Anybody that thinks that hundreds and hundreds and thousands of acres of solar panels doesn't have an impact on the environment, they're they're mistaken. This has a huge impact right away. Why? I think we need more carrot and less stick. Like, let's have people, no farmer wants to be spraying Roundup. They just don't want to be the generation that lost the family farm. And so the farmers are not our enemies. They're actually our greatest allies. And so, you know, you hear these people say like, oh, we just need to stop farming. And I'm looking at them like, no, that's not the answer. It's not. The farmer is the greatest ally and the greatest custodian of the earth. And so we have to enroll them in the possibility of a future 
where their soil is black and beautiful like it was when their father or their grandfather was farming. Molly, Molly for president. Yeah, really. (laughs) No kidding. It's crazy to me how we've become very accustomed to eating what we want, when we want. And that is not sustainable. Eating broccoli, carrots, and cauliflower as your side vegetable 365 days a year, not sustainable. And people have to expand their horizons about what there is to eat. I mean, we've been eating zucchini every meal for, I don't know, two or three months right now. And that's just the way it is. There's like a ton of zucchini and we're zucchini bread and we're zucchini tacos and zucchini whatever. So I believe that the seasonality is super important. I believe that everybody should grow some food, even if it's a small amount, so they can get how hard it is. Because if you knew how many times someone called me to say that the carrots look poorly and they want their refund on the whole box, and I'll be like, on the whole box? like, And it's like, do you know those short carrots? Like some carrots are not long carrots. And so at certain seasons, we can't get carrots to grow long because of whatever daylight. And so so we grow short, those like kind of round short ones. And then people say, oh, it's like a third of a carrot. Like it doesn't seem like it's like two bites. Yeah. Or we had some melons that were pretty small, but they were really sweet. They were honeydew and they were, but they were small. But I thought I was like, kind of like, oh, it's perfect for the box. <laughs> it won't take up. Cause you know, if you put a melon in a CSA box, it takes up the whole box. Right. And, and people were like, it was only like five bites. It doesn't, and I don't know. I feel like when did we get this idea that we could only eat melons that are this size and we could only eat lemons? I had someone call me the other day and they said, something's going on with my lemon tree. The lemons are all different weird shapes. I was like, send me a picture. I was like, those are the shapes that lemons come in. And she's like, well, why are they all the same shape in the store? And I was like, I don't know, but the round ones don't go to the store. Only the oval ones go to the store. And those other ones get, the farmer gets paid just pennies on the dollar for juice. And I had some woofers. I had woofers from South Africa. When they got here, they were looking at the grocery store and they were like, why does all the produce look exactly the same size? And so we have a weird spoiled thing about produce and it is it is not beneficial to the farmer. Let me tell you that. Like the amount of times that I got to apologize and I assert that a hundred years ago, people ate cabbages if they were small or big and people ate lemons, whatever shape they were. I don't know for sure, but I don't think that It was like, oh, we're only going to, you know, or even a little scratches like nowadays, any orange that has, if the orange has a way that it's rubbing against a branch, it can get a little scab on the the skin. It doesn't impact the orange at all, but then the farmer only gets paid for a juice orange, not can't be sold, but it peels easy. There's nothing wrong. It's not impacted on the inside. And so I think ugly produce did this a little bit, but even the ugly produce from ugly produce is still pretty perfect looking. (laughs) I think we really have to like wake people up to like, why do we need every tomato to be the same size? They don't grow like that. And in order to make them grow like that, we're feeding them like exactly the same amount of fertilizer and getting hydroponic. And hydroponics is not the answer. You know, the the, car- the carcinogens in the nitrates in the uh, the nitrogen fertilizer cannot get transformed by the roots alone without the microbiology. And so a tomato right off the vine is cancer fighting, but a tomato from uh, hydroponics, I don't know that we haven't had any you know studies about this, but the nitrates are not transformed in the same way that they are through soil. So and nitrates are not good for you. So I assert that they're probably not good for you, but I know that people want 
hydro to be the answer because it's controllable. But I think we have to stop looking at everything as like controllable and organized and efficient and go back to eating food, real food. Well, it's controllable and then someone can make a lot of money on that, right? Because there's like certain equipment that you need for hydro. And yeah, sucks when the equipment you need is what is free and available to all, right? (laughs) No one benefits. Yeah, nobody benefits. Can you tell us a little bit about your rescue animals and your bird sanctuary? So I have a lot of birds that my brother-in-law for my first marriage went to prison for pot and he went to prison for five years in, in Wisconsin. And so he had a parrot and I took the parrot while he was in prison. And then I got really interested about parrots and I was reading about the parrots and then I read that they don't reach sexual maturity till they're 14 or 12 and they mate for life and they live in a family group and they stay with their family. And I, all this like really interesting and they have languages and different parrots from different areas. If you let one go from another area, they have to learn the language before anybody will meet with them. Very interesting stuff. And so I started thinking like, I can't have this parrot all by itself. So I have to go get another parrot. So I looked on the internet for someone that was trying to give away their parrot. I found this other parrot. And then basically the floodgates just happened. And then I had like six parrots in my dining room. My whole house was filled with this dust that they make from their bodies. That was part of the wanting to get the farm. I was like, oh my God. So the first thing we did when we got to the farm is we built this huge parrot aviary. And it's like, I think it's like 25 feet by 25 feet. And I don't know how tall it is, but it's big. And the crazy thing is here in Texas, the previous owner had tigers. And so we're going to be able to modify the tiger cages and put all the parrots here. We have a bunch of elderly parents. They're like, I just had one pass that was 50 that I'd had. (gasps) Oh my gosh. A long time. And I have one where the woman doesn't know how old he was when she was 86. And she just went into an elder care facility. His name is Pedro. Paco. I have a Pedro as well. But Paco's the one. That, and so she was 86. She went into elder care. And they wouldn't let her take her bird. But she had her bird since she said she was in her 20s. But she didn't know exactly how old she was when she had it. So he's probably 60 years old, Paco. And then we've had, you know, multiple different birds over the years. We've had a few die, but mostly people drop off birds or the veterinarian will call me. There was like a a guy died and there was a like a hoarding situation and the veterinarian didn't want them to go to the pound or the pound didn't want to take them. So I came with a van and picked up a bunch of birds and I rehomed a bunch of them. But mostly I just am like an elder care facility for parents. Like the ones that are had a lot of different homes already and have had not great lives. I just keep them. They just get to live there forever. And then if they're young and they're like, seem pretty good, I try to find a home where they could maybe. But honestly, I think living in community in a flock, they they really do great. And, and they don't take as much work. Parents need a lot of attention, but when they have a whole social hierarchy and everything, and then we have all the extra fruit and the produce from the farm and then we buy parent food. Yeah, so we have a whole bunch of parrots. I don't know how we're going to move up to Texas. We might need volunteers if anybody wants to drive parrots to Texas. <laughs> do, do you interact with them every day do you, or, do, or do they are they fine in their thing? I mean, over the feeding them, I guess. So my... I have a friend that lives on the farm, Tara, and Tara works, her, she has an apothecary in town, but part of her exchange for living on the property is she takes care of the birds uh, and they're right outside. 
like my back door and then my garage is where I do a lot of office work. So I walk, you know, I'm right there and walk back and forth and talk to them and they talk to me. Uh, and so, yes, I interact with them every day. We get them their treat. We don't grow. I mean, we do grow grapes, but they're not like the big, they're uh, wide grapes. And so they're little, but um, we get the organic grapes from Costco is their favorite treat, like non-farm produce thing. And watermelon season they love watermelon season and yeah so we have a whole bunch of parents and it's always we're always getting more <laughs> people someone just gave us a cockatoo that was at a wedding venue and it was too loud it was messing up the ceremonies <laughs> so oh my good. gosh so among other things you're also a poet i was a poet i guess i still am a poet but i was a poet for a long time like professionally as a job Really? I was going to ask, what was your job when you were sitting in your pool in your gated community realizing that you had to start a farm? Was, was that I the was, poet I, era? I was a rest, no, that was my restaurant era. Okay. okay. <laughs> I was a poet for a while. It's not the best money, but mostly it was lonely because I was traveling all around the country and staying in hotels and just like, you know, one hour of a show and then a bunch of adoration for a few minutes after the show and then 20 hours of sitting in a hotel room or driving to the next venue. It was a performance type thing, huh? Yeah, like spoken word. Like I was on HBO Deaf Poetry. You can look it up. Oh. It's embarrassing. Uh, no, no. That's so well, cool. And then you also produced a movie. A couple of movies, yeah. Tell us about your movies. Well, so I helped my brothers produce. They mostly produced it. And I helped a movie called May I Be Frank, which was a a vegan journey, a, a guy that was uh, like a 40 or 50 something year old guy who was a drug addict, alcoholic. And he came into Cafe Gratitude, my dad's restaurant. And he was like, I just want to see my dick one last time. And he had a kind of fat stomach. And and my brothers like took him on and they did like this 40 day cleanse and, and everything and doing affirmations and everything. And anyways, he lost a ton of weight. And he went on to change his whole life and he became an inspirational speaker and went all around the world. And so that was May I Be Frank. And then I made a film with my friend Mark Weber that went to Sundance called The End of Love. I helped my ex-husband and my brother-in-law from my first marriage make a horror movie called Welcome to Willits. And I don't know what else you'd have to look on IMDb. Might be other things. But yeah, so I've done some stuff in the film. And that's what I went to college for is film. Wow, Molly. Yeah, were you involved in the Kiss the Ground movies at all? No, I mean, I was on the board of directors of the nonprofit. And so there was some collaboration. And now the the second movie's coming out, Common Ground. Do you guys know about this? There's some really cool celebrities attached to that one, right? Like, was it Woody Harrelson? And he was on the first one, too. And yeah, so it's coming out in the movies. I think it, I'm going to the premiere here in Austin in October 4th. Very cool. Now that you've said Cafe Gratitude a couple of times, I do have a memory. I think I have been there. There's one in Venice Beach, right? Yes, ma'am. Is it the one where you go in and all the drinks are like named like you're nodding? It's like, I can't even, <laughs> yes. it's like crazy things like I wish to be well. No, it wouldn't be I wish to be well because that's not an affirmation, but it would be like I am well or I am abundance or I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> so when you go to order and you say, can I please have the I am abundance smoothie? I am magical. <laughs> I, yes, everything, everything, everything has a name like that. That's so fun. <laughs> yes, that is that restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Making connections here. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Great. Okay, so 
Here on The Good Dirt, we talk about slow food. We like to talk about slow fashion and just in general, how all these things work together in slow living. And you, Molly Englehart, you have a lot going on. You do a lot. I'm always interested to hear from people like you, especially what slow living means to you. I have no idea because my life <laughs> out in your life. <laughs> my life is so full and so fast paced. I I have like a cycle, like an idea of slow living. And my Instagram looks like I probably am like epic at slow living. But uh, <laughs> in real life, my life is so, so, so full. And I want to get back to that slow living idea. But I guess what it means is that we eat of the earth and what we grow. And I used to order out, you know, so many days a week when I lived in the city in LA. You know, now, for example, today we're getting ready for this event and my husband's putting up a greenhouse and then he was feeding his sourdough starter and then he was making sourdough bread and then the milk came up from the cows and we did the cream separator and then we ate leftovers for breakfast. So that wasn't very exciting, but we ate leftovers for breakfast. And then, but, you know, and, and then we harvested zucchini and that's going to be for dinner. And so I, I don't know, like our life is very full. We have three restaurants, a brewery, three farms, four children, plus our big adopted son, who's, he doesn't take anything away. He only adds, he's such a blessing. So it's really, our life is so, so full. So I don't know if we should use the word slow, but I think that I believe in eating whole food of the earth that you care for, that that is, that that is the rebellion, that that is the revolution and that the revolution will not be televised. It's not exciting. It's not, but to milk a cow that is your cow that, and then put it through a cream separator and put that cream into your coffee in the morning, that is the revolution. And you know, we can talk about single use plastics and whatever, but that act of like cow to cream separator to glass jar in the refrigerator, like there's nothing more sustainable than that. And so that's the version of slow food that I'm living. It's a very fast paced life. And and even to a confronting point, like I feel like I'm not the best farmer, I'm not the best mother, I'm not the best entrepreneur because there's so much to manage. But, you know, our personal opinion is that slow living and full living are not mutually exclusive. And, and it, slow living does not mean we're not busy and that we don't have a lot going on in our life. It's, it, you know, it's more like, what are you busy with? Yeah. And, and we feel and my husband gets annoyed. He was like, you feel every bit of time like and he was so bad about this fermented hot sauce that I made. And like there was these tiny chilies and he just was going to mow them. He didn't want to harvest them. And I. I got volunteers to harvest them for, it was like right after the baby was born. It was like five months ago. And then I cleaned them all with the kids and then I blended them all and put them with salt and our persimmons, raw persimmons vinegar we made. And I fermented it for five months. And my husband was like so annoyed. Like it's like four days put into this hot sauce. And now it's like his favorite hot sauce. He's like gone through a couple of gallons in a couple of weeks. So yeah, that's a version of slow living. Like we have these hot chilies. They're too small. The customers will complain and tell me they look poorly, but <laughs> I don't want to throw them away. And so we make them into fermented hot sauce. That's a version. Or we had a ton of cabbages that were too small and we made them all in kimchi or sauerkraut. 
That's awesome. That's such a good example. Like, yeah, four days of hot sauce. That's pretty slow hot sauce. But guess what is the best hot sauce ever? Four days of labor and then four months of fermenting. (laughs) Wait, but the vinegar, but the vinegar took 18 months to ferment that I used to then ferment the hot sauce. You said persimmon vinegar? That sounds so good. You can order it on our website. You can order that on our website. We have persimmons vinegar and blackberry persimmons vinegar and plate persimmons vinegar as well. I actually think persimmons is a highly underutilized food that fruit that is prolific, does not need a lot of water, and it has a high sugar content and can be used in a lot of ways that we use other fruits. And it hasn't gotten a lot of play, but it is far, it is prolific, it does not need any pesticides, it doesn't need any fertilizer, it barely needs water. And here in Maryland, there's a, there's a native persimmon. It grows everywhere. It comes up. If you don't mow for a little while, you'll get persimmon trees coming up. And they're delicious. And I, I'm like you, like, why is this, why is this such, this is like the forgotten fruit or the ignored fruit or something. In fact, I think it should be, instead of pumpkin spice lattes, I think it should be persimmon spice lattes. I have this idea that we could use persimmons to make a sugar, that I actually think it could be a perennial sugar out of persimmons. And we do the persimmons vinegar and then we do dried persimmons and then we do a a sandwich where we take the more harder persimmons and we use it in place of tomatoes with pesto. And like you could do it if you're not vegan, you could do it with buffalo mozzarella and we do it with a cashew cheese in the restaurant, but it's pesto and persimmons and the mozzarella. And I mean, it's an amazing panini and it goes in the place of the tomato. Oh, wow. Another great value of persimmons is that they are a wonderful teacher of patience because if you try to eat that persimmon before it's done, ooh, you'll find out quick. <laughs> so that's like, but we grow the uh, the Fuyu persimmons, so it doesn't, it doesn't have that. But here in Texas, so this last year we made, it's just finished. I just actually bottled it. It's not on our website yet. But we used persimmons from California and the the wild persimmons from Texas in combination in a vinegar. So there's a black persimmons. I had this whole fantasy. It was going to be like a black vinegar. It literally like almost made no impact on the color. But we did a black wild persimmons with the Fuyu persimmons combination from the Texas ranch and then the California ranch persimmons vinegar. So you don't get that super dry, mouth dry effect on on your persimmons? No. So that happens with many varieties of persimmons, but the giant fuyu, the fuyu, there's like three or four varieties that that does not happen with. Okay, Molly, what does good dirt mean to you? Good dirt is dirt that you would feed your children. That if I saw my five-month-old shoving it in their mouth, I'd have zero concern. Mm, great. That's great. Which is... Which is <laughs> all the dirt that I have around here. That's awesome. I was going to say like this whole conversation has been about good dirt. So um, it almost seems redundant to ask her, but that was a fantastic answer. Yes. (laughs) Also, you might feel like you've said it because you've been, you've said so many wonderful things, but is there anything that you feel you haven't said yet? Or what is it that you would most like the audience to understand about the work that you're doing? I can't do it alone. You're the one that we've been waiting for. We are the custodians of the earth and it is up to us. And there's no government, no bureaucracy, no outside source that's going to save us. And this is the revolution. Grow our own food, create healthy soil and raise healthy children. Totally. I am applauding. I'm. That's just so wonderful. <laughs> so good. 
Thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. We really loved having you on. Yes, I know you're super busy. Thank you so much for your time. It was just a fantastic conversation. I've enjoyed it so much. And you said so many things that just resonate in our hearts and minds hugely. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.